dialed in to Box and Brews, you might hear something you can use. Like tips on your cash or tips on the suds. You're going to want to use the smarts of these studs. Because they know the brews. And they know the box. And they know they can't help the stubborn fucks. So listen up, because shit's not funny. And save yourself some beer money. Bucks. And brews. Bucks and brews. And brews. Bucks and brews. Welcome back to Bucks and Brews. Um, we're going to be a little different this week, Nick. There we go. Um, we're not going to actually moderate this. We're going to hand over the reins. Um, we can talk about what we're drinking. I know three of us are drinking almost nothing. Um, so, Nick, I'll let you go first because it's your normal. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm back from the cruise where I had a nice boost time, and I'm drinking uh, more Bud Lights. We'll say it's uh, I don't know, just a couple for tonight. Um, I'm gonna start losing some weight apparently so i mean that's a good thing yeah. mike and i talked about that too we'll see um jim my friend jim is joining us he will be one of our moderators tonight um i'm drinking uh starting out with a, a lagunitas happy refresher which is a kind of a hop water zero calories zero alcohol and a groovy ipa thanks to my sponsor mike benson yes uh or tonight's sponsor i should say mike benson um also it's a this is a low calorie zero alcohol uh ipa they're both wonderful myself i'm taking a uh, page out of one of my oldest friends book mm -hmm. but i'm not drinking city of anything water i just have some bottled water here it probably comes from city of somewhere so yeah it's just not here um mike what do you have i'm kind of mixing up a few different things i'm going to start with a reed's ginger beer which is yummy. It's one of the spiciest ginger beers I've been able to find since the uh, old Dyke Stewart's one stopped being made. I've got some fresh from the mill apple cider, and then I'm going to take a page out of the other book, and I'm going to drink City of Portage tap water. <laughs> Professor, what do you have, my friend? I have the usual in my very hands, a glass of City of Lansing tap water, the best around. Um, we are currently joined by Josh Hilgert, who is running for the ninth circuit, circuit court in Kalamazoo. Josh, how are you this evening? I'm doing well. Thank you very much, David. Very welcome. Um, I don't know if you're drinking anything. Typically, uh, we we drink beer while we do this show. Um, but as you've kind of garnered, some of us are trying to save our livers after a week on a boat. Oh, well, it's been, I shudder to say, as an aspiring sober judge, <laughs> I'm drinking a side yard cascade that was provided to me by my childhood neighbor for this very event. Cheers. Uh, Dales, so. Excellent. Cheers. So I wanted to start this episode with Jim and David both giving their credentials since they're basically moderating tonight. So Jim, you go ahead and start since you're next to me. All right, that sounds good. Uh, yep. Uh, again, I'm Jim Lowry. I graduated in 1994 with a bachelor's degree uh, in political science from the University of Michigan. And during all of my college years and a few thereafter, I actually um, ran political campaigns for a living, um, worked, uh, started out um, 19, I want to say, was it, 19, it was 1990, working for a candidate who nobody thought could ever uh, win the governor's um, seat, and he did. That was John Engler. And then uh, 92, I worked for the Bush Quail campaign, um, spent some time at the White House as well, 
and uh, then uh, did a couple of other uh, statewide races, have done a lot of local races uh, since then as well, but during that time, state senate, state house, a few judgeships, and uh, some county commission races as well. So, um, and I like to say that I didn't leave the Republican Party, the Republican Party left me, they left me behind a long time ago. Um, more so recently, as someone who's a strong believer in, um, in democracy and uh, elections, as well as uh, civil libertarian, um, that's um, not, not a place I find a home anymore and haven't for about 25 years. David, you're up. All right. uh, I'm David Seawick, and I um, teach history at a college in Michigan, Lansing Community College. I've been there for uh, 16 years. I have uh, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in history. My undergraduate minor was political science from um, Central Michigan University. And then I also have a postgraduate diploma in history from the University of Strathclyde, which is in Glasgow, Scotland. Yes, and uh, I also work in the corporate training division of Lansing Community College. So I work a lot with area businesses. Just as an aside, our, our first guest, Josh, uh, might know one of my longest um, uh, friends, uh, someone I've known for about 45 years now, Chris Denny, who is the head of the Public Defender's Office in Kent County. And uh, took a, a he's been doing that for almost his entire legal career, but took a break from that to uh, help get public defender offices uh, started up in other parts of the state I and mean, he's working for the state of Michigan. So I'm not sure, Josh, if you know uh, Chris or not, but uh, he and I have been friends for about 45 years. We've known each other since kindergarten. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I, I do know Chris. Chris mm -hmm. was at the MIDC yep. uh, when we were getting started taking exactly. that break that you described. So yep. yeah. And then frequently, you know, we chat with Chris about we run into issues or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, anything. We're like, hey, what do you do when you run into this? So um yeah yep. absolutely yeah no, he's great no Chris yeah, he is a good guy uh, Josh quick question and I'll let them know but are you currently an incumbent or are you running for a new position I'm running for a new position people rarely run against incumbent judges because we're all lawyers and then we have to <laughs> practice in front of that judge after we lose so um <laughs> so so there are two open seats in the circuit court uh one, uh, Judge Gorsale, it's he's aged out, as they say, you can't run again after you're 70 in Michigan. Um, and the other is Judge Lipsy. Uh, so so that created the two vacancies in the circuit court. There's one in district court, too. Uh, so that, that's a, it's a big year in Kalamazoo County for judicial races, as the signs may tell. I have a friend who's an incumbent judge who is running unopposed and locally. Um, I won't give names on this, but let's just say he, he works mostly in family court, which will probably point you exactly. And you want your scouts. You'll probably point you right to uh, yeah. what I'm talking about. It's a small world. Well, and Josh, tell us a little bit about, you know, your background. You caught me drinking a beer. He said that happens. Drink, baby. <laughs> We're like waiters. Um, but I, I grew up here in Kalamazoo. Um, I went to school just uh, outside of Chicago uh, at a place called Scheimer College. It's a small liberal arts school uh, where it's all great books like Socratic Method, um, totally unemployable degree. Um, and, uh, but, but, but a good, lots of philosophy and dead white men. And, um, and then uh, after that worked in Washington, D.C., um, 
for a while for uh, People for the American Way, which was a civil liberties advocacy organization, but but uh, probably left leaning by most descriptions. Although those descriptions have less meaning, I think, currently than they did back then. Um, and uh, and worked there for a number of years in uh, on voting rights, uh, doing analysis and uh, judicial nominees. Uh, and then I worked for an international environmental organization on the condition that they let me, after a couple of years, work remotely from Kalamazoo. I plotted with my brother to move back here um, to Kalamazoo. He was in Memphis. Um, I moved back here uh, and got my law degree at Michigan State University. Um, and I commuted um, and, and uh, moved here with my wife. Um, and after that, clerked in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, that involved writing opinions and orders for the court and doing the research uh, on the cases. And after that clerkship, worked at Legal Aid uh, for a number of years. Um, and that was a real eye-opener, getting to know people firsthand and working with them who were really poor and struggling mightily. Um, it was uh, it was a great education, uh, which kind of led me to jump in when Kalamazoo County announced it was turning indigent defense over to a nonprofit if a nonprofit would bid for the contract. So I formed a nonprofit uh, with uh, the aid of criminal defense experts, mental health experts, uh, community uh, leaders. Um, and and uh, bid for the contract and that was Kalamazoo Defender and got the contract that's uh, Kalamazoo's current indigent defense provider the public defender um, so independent nonprofit that's kind of unusual Chris Denny as you mentioned earlier um, he has a nonprofit that's actually been around for a while uh, it's kind of an outlier uh, so we joined him uh, and then and then we added to uh, the office not just the public defense but a whole office floor of service providers from around Kalamazoo County that staff our office so that they can work with our clients kind of as a team in a Mayo Clinic kind of fashion. You got your housing person, you got your mental health person, you got your criminal defense attorney who can work together uh, to try to figure out how to get some of the intractable problems that so many of our clients are struggling with when they get into the criminal justice system mm -hmm. uh, so that they don't keep cycling back and maybe can avoid uh, long-term incarceration. And that's what I'm doing now. Uh, I currently run that organization. I, I will throw this out here real quick. I wanted to give a shout out to Corrine who actually set this up for us. Um, so shout out to her. Great job of her texting me back and forth, trying to, to get you on Josh. Um, I know we have a few questions. We did just get Joe to join. Joe. Um, Howdy. We're uh, welcome. You're getting scam calls. Uh, um, maybe. Uh, we'll get we'll we'll bring in in a few minutes here, Joe. We're just talking to Josh, who's running for the Ninth Circuit Court in uh, Kalamazoo. Oh yeah. And uh, I know we had a few questions. I believe. Um, I I don't know whether David or Jim want to jump in here. David, you can go ahead and go first. Sure. I was um, very fascinated with the uh, introduction that you gave us, Josh. Your story is um, 
I think it's uh, interesting. It's taking some different places around the country. And the one that struck me the most is the um, indigent defense. Um, well, not only the way that Kalamazoo County had um, the route they decided to go in offering that constitutionally mandated service, but uh, the way that you came up with a creative solution, it looks like, to the problem they were facing. And, you know, I... Um, I work at a college that has uh, a lot of screens around campus. And on one of the screens today popped up that it was in this day in 1948 that uh, Harry S. Truman defeated Thomas Dewey. And we're all probably familiar with the photo. Um, it's a very famous one of, of uh, Truman holding up a Chicago newspaper that has the big bold headline, uh, Dewey defeats Truman. And um, of course, that's not what happened. Harry S. Truman won and, and uh, ended up serving another four years in office. And what made me think of, of bringing that up here is that you have this election coming up and polling is where I'm going with this. So polling in the uh, 1940s was starting to become a precise science. The Gallup group did, I think, the first presidential poll in the uh, 1936 presidential election. They phoned up 800 people in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. They predicted a 95% uh, voting rate for uh, the, the guy running against Roosevelt. And that would have been the result they would have gotten if they called up 900 people in Manhattan back then. Nowadays, it would be much different, but the poll didn't exactly predict the election. Roosevelt won re-election. The 1948 election, the polling was a little bit more precise, but it still looked like that um, uh, Truman was going to lose. And part of what Truman ran on in that election was really a mandate of the parts of the New Deal program that the Republican Party had um, suggested they might pick away at should they get in power. And so Truman used that as a mandate that up oh, I won, it was close, but I won. And so parts of the New Deal are here to stay. Now, not everything he was going to do, he got. He failed at uh, uh, national health system, actually, which is one of the things that he tried very hard to get. But the American Medical Association was afraid doctors would take a pay cut, so they lobbied heavily against it. Um, where I'm going with this is when you, and I'll pu put this question out there really to anybody here, but Josh, I can ask you as well. When a candidate for whatever the public office is, ends up winning an election. Our system is one that the guy that gets 50% plus one of the vote wins. And so there's this whole idea of mandate out there. If you win a close election, is there a responsibility amongst the candidate to sort of um, temper his mood of mandate and respect the fact that the vote was actually rather divided and if so, do we see evidence of this actually happening nowadays when you have close elections that turn out one way or another? Well, that that's that's a fascinating question. Um, you know, in terms, of, I mean, you know, individual moral choices and civic obligation. Um, so, uh, I, I guess, I, you know, yeah, we certainly don't see, I don't know, um, I will, I would, so, so I'll just answer it, you know, in terms of, of how I look at it, um, that, um, that I, 
ran suggesting that I would do particular things. And so I do feel some obligation to do those things. Um, I think one place where I have good fortune that people running for other offices don't have um, is that uh, my job is vastly less political or should be. I would expect in my case it would be. I mean, I'm focused on, on uh, you know, the things I'm talking about, how to, how to create better public service through the courts, transparency, community input, um, those, those kinds of things, you know, in a system that is often obscured to the public. What does circuit court mean? And what does district court mean? And where's their jurisdiction? And all these things that I'm discovering, you know, even more than I imagined are completely uh, uh, unknown to a great many of the, the voters and the public generally. So um, just trying to have it be a responsive system um, and and I think generally I haven't run into a lot of opposition that appears to be ideologically based on uh, for that one, um, you know, nor nor any seeming objection from members of the bench or other candidates. So um, so I, I, unfortunately, my my circumstances are not um, as juicy to engage that question, which I think is a good one. Uh, it really does, you know, it really does ask a number of, of inquiries, I think, uh, especially when you get into political offices. I don't sure. know if that was considered a dodge. You can refocus that if you <laughs> No, no, I don't think it's a dodge at all. I think it, um, it, it gives me confidence, actually, to hear that judicial um, elections are not uh, degraded, one might say, or changed if one was a little more optimistic looking at it, uh, it to a point of extreme partisanship. And you see some um, some judicial candidates are a little bit more out in the open than others. And, and here in Lansing, we had a very well-known uh, trial that happened a few years ago with the case of Larry Nasser, who was a uh, MSU sports medicine professor. And he was accused and ultimately found guilty of just all kinds of horrific crimes, uh, dozens, if not hundreds of uh, abuse cases against minors. And his uh, sentencing hearing turned out to be one in which the, the judge who oversaw the hearing, uh, Rose, Rosemary Aquilina, she came, became kind of a national celebrity as a result of that. And it, it, created a uh, public persona on a local judge that probably I would say 99% of judges in the country would never have, uh, never be in that circumstance. But I, th I think most of the time, yes, these are sort of very important positions that nobody knows what they do. Okay. Uh, Joe, I'd love to hear you weigh in on this. And I'd also like you to kind of introduce yourself. Oh, yeah, no worries. Um, so uh, my name is Joe Spaulding. Uh, I live in Holland. I'm running for county commission in Ottawa County, uh, District 2. It covers most of Holland Township. Uh, but professionally, I'm a campaign strategist, and uh, I um, do a lot of opposition research, a lot of tracking. And I think this question is fascinating um, for me specifically because I'm running against a woman named Lucy Ebel. Um, she's part of a faction called Ottawa Impact that I think we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, Lucy um, happened to show up 
for a city of Holland meeting. Again, we both live in Holland Township, not in the city of Holland. It should have been a city of Holland meeting to speak out against their ordinance that would have provided protection for LGBTQ residents when it comes to housing and employment. Uh, statewide, we have the Elliott Larson Act that protects those things for uh, most categories of uh, marginalized people in the state. But um, at the time, and of course, have ruled differently since then, but at the time, uh, for LGBTQ um, folks in Michigan, they had no housing and employment protections. Like legally, your landlord could kick you out just because they thought you were gay. Um, so Holland you know, stepped up to the plate, passed an ordinance to do this, and my opponent went across town uh, to the city hall and spoke out against this. And when she was speaking out against this ordinance, to bring us back to the question at hand, uh, she was really, really mad that the city council who was freshly elected was fulfilling their campaign promise to pass that ordinance. She spoke out um, at, uh, in opposition to campaign promises getting fulfilled. And uh, it, you know, maybe there's an argument there that's uh, a little bit more eloquent that can be made that David kind of outlined when it comes to a responsibility to the rest of the electorate when you win by 50% plus one. But the way she presented it was, uh, that it was a personal affront that they were fulfilling the campaign promises that they had made to get elected. And that's the other side of the coin, um, because the reality is democracy isn't won by miles. Uh, in the way we do it in America, in our two-party system, democracy is won by inches or centimeters. So um, those 50 percent won things, um, you know, that, that matters to folks um, in a lot of ways uh, when it comes to people who are facing eviction or facing not getting employment because of who they love. Uh, I think that kind of like distills everything down to a really, really condensed point uh, that sometimes, yeah, that, that it's you, you want to have a little bit of uh, cooperation. You want to make sure you reach across the aisle and move forward when you're passing a budget. Um, but if you're running on something that's tied to the very core of human dignity and you get elected on that, uh, you have a moral obligation to to fulfill um, you know that promise, I think. Um, and I think that's a clear difference between myself and my opponent, but moreover, I think that there's a larger philosophical question here that's, I think, fascinating. I haven't talked about this stuff since college, it's awesome. So I, I kind of have a related question, um, and, and for both of you, I think, um, particularly in the last probably six years or so now, we're starting to really see an erosion of the, you know, the public side of public service, right? As you're, as you're alluding to, Joe, and I think as, as we've seen a lot recently, you know, there's this kind of uh, Steve Bannon, or Steve Bannon, um, a, you know, a strategy of, uh, of kind of taking over and creating a, a, an authoritarian theocracy from the ground up. And, you know, you, you, you see people like, like you're just describing, Joe, or you see people at school board meetings talking about banning books and, and, and really um, campaigning now, actively campaigning in West Michigan uh, with a platform or, 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 or taking positions of not serving the entire, you know, all the public, right? Um, and as and I mentioned uh, during my introduction, I, you know, I was a Republican at one time, but I was a civil. I've always been more of a civil liberties kind of civil libertarian sort of person, and understood that you know there's a line, there are some lines that aren't to be crossed. And I just would like if uh, if both of you can kind of talk about that. You know, what what is it that you see um, as as your um, or, or what would your approach? Was your responsibility toward maybe kind of putting the public back in public service? Um, uh, well, uh, my answer will be less interesting um, <laughs> because I, I, you know, obviously we're not supposed to talk about issues directly. We might rule on, so that involves all kinds of things, church Absolutely. and state, bodily yep. autonomy, everything, you know, um, and, uh, but I 
will say, you know, just observing one of the things that I had done in Washington, the, the organization I worked for also, you know, was kind of looking at the expansion of televangelists and the Christian coalition and their influence, particularly on the Republican Party, um, and how well organized and what a what a a powerful machine it was and how that kind of seemed to dissipate uh you know by late in the 90s uh and and even you know with the election of george w bush uh, it was not as prominent as it appeared with reagan uh or the first bush um but but there is a kind of a a, a similar a parallel kind of um you know factioning it would appear um so so old things are new again um it would seem um it certainly is going to be a a very important um development for the judiciary because i believe all right. kinds of questions are coming to the fore and will continue to do so um that that are that are going to visit territory that was once thought long settled. Yeah, and just before before you answer, Joe, if I could just a quick follow-up to that, Josh. Um, I was really intrigued what you're saying about your, you know, your um, service with the, um, uh, you know, indigent uh, felony cases and things like that, right, with the public defenders. Um, does that play into your, I guess, sort of your uh, approach in terms of serving the entire community, right? I'm not necessarily talking about, um, from a partisan perspective, but you you mentioned like how you how you set up your office to not just include uh, indigent def, you know defense cases, but also um, you're setting up you're trying to be more transparent and things like that. What what from what you've done with the public defender's office in uh, in Kalamazoo County, can you would, would you then bring into the judiciary? Mm, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, I think. I think one of the important aspects, you know, certainly that I learned uh, when I was at Legal Aid that we, you know, incorporated into uh, our, our kind of fabric at the Public Defender Office is that the people who come through, we get 5,000 cases a year at the Public Defender Office, which makes it one of the biggest law firms in Western Michigan. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of people. And, and the majority of them are suffering from mental health issues mm -hmm. that are unaddressed with the cut in mental health services that took place many years ago here in Michigan. Um, so police become the frontline mental health providers. Um, and people with trauma, high ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences, you know, so we're, we're encountering people, they're members of our community that, that are not fully participating in our community. Mm -hmm. Consequently, they're they're finally getting noticed, so to speak, when when they start entering into the criminal justice system through an addiction or a mental health outburst or you know uh, theft of you know of whatever. And they're they're all also grindingly poor. Uh, the it's, it's really it's not it's not like they're just below the poverty line and we have like a smooth cascade of people. They are mostly abject poverty is their experience so um it occurred you know it, it to me that 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 identifying this group of people as part of our community 
that they're they're not a problem for our community you know they're part of our community that are creating issues social issues that we have to deal with and so building on Kalamazoo's legacy with drug court which it was a pioneer of uh, nationally mm -hmm. 30 years ago building on programs that try to catch people uh, before they get too involved you know reduce tomorrow's victims by you know as soon as people start engaging and in the 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 juvenile court too how do we how do we identify problems and try to solve them for our community members um when when they they first start uh, making that contact i think that we can take some of that model from the defender how do you bring in service providers around the community uh, again the courts bring isk integrated services of kalamazoo into the mental health recovery court if we address things beyond the mental health like also the the housing brought in community support so that there were people that are hanging out in the neighborhoods with these people supporting them um you know there might be ways to to get higher success rates and reduce recidivism absolutely perfect thank you um joe back to you sorry i didn't mean to uh i didn't mean to throw that follow-up in there but um how, how to put the public back in public service yeah, no, that's awesome. And uh, I'm just briefly, real quick, Josh, that's awesome, the work that you're doing. I just want to commend you for that. And I don't know um, how familiar everybody in, in Kalamazoo is with everybody else, but Reagan Sabara was a college professor of mine. She's the only one that gave me uh, an, a, an A plus in, uh, in international security studies or something uh, in terrorism. And then uh, also Cassie Evanson uh, was a high school classmate of mine. So, All right, uh, well, I'll, I'll say hi to Reagan for you and, and thank her again on your behalf. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's. I I worked at Legal Aid with Reagan, um, and certainly talked with her a great deal as I was putting together this plan. No, I, I appreciate that. And when it comes to um, uh, bringing back the um, wow, when I talk about when I talk about public service, um, I I think that if there's any place that can get the question right, I think that it's in West Michigan, um, and for the very reasons that I think all of us are kind of seeing in our communities. And that's, um, I, I guess the easy example for me is that. Uh, the current sitting Republican County Commission, my commission district, and I have talked, uh, uh, Joe Bauman and I, um, and the frankly, the way that the Ottawa Impact candidates, and this is mostly at the Ottawa County Commission level, they have mm -hmm. candidates uh, running for school board across the board, right. uh, ran for their primaries. They were, they were jerks. <laughs> they were really, really mean to the incumbents, right? Yeah, like, they, like inappropriate, like, like threat, threatening emails left and right, just like horrific stuff. Oh, showing up at people's houses. We've, I mean, in in Kent County, we've had people showing up at uh, at their opponents' houses and things like that. As yeah, well. yeah. And, and like, like I say, I do professional opposition research mm -hmm. for a living, right? Like, I consider it my job to deep six candidates to stop them from being <laughs> bad, bad politicians. And I, like, it, it's it was disgusting. So. I mean that that's that's the framework for like what's going on on the ground. But the backdrop to that is different, right? Mm -hmm. Ottawa County moved nine points away from Donald Trump between 2016 and 2020 when mm -hmm. uh, he was running against Hillary Clinton. He was running against Joe Biden. Nobody, and I'm saying this as someone who is going to vote Democrat straight down the ticket. Nobody thinks that that's because Joe Biden was such a powerful and compelling mm -hmm. candidate, right? right? Like this was a moral question for voters in West Michigan. And the, the Republicans and the Democrats understand that. And, you know, frankly, I, I, I'm not the, the world's biggest cheerleader for everything that capitalism has done. You know, I'm a, I'm a true millennial in that sense, I guess. 
But when it comes to West Michigan, we see some really, really clear historical examples of businesses stepping up to the plate and changing the community in positive ways. We yep. see things like New Holland Brewery going to bat for their beer tent. And uh, like, you know, everyone thought that the whole the whole city of Holland was going to have a meltdown if they sold beer at a beer tent during tulip time. Nothing right. of the sort happened. And, uh, you know, that's just with beer. You know, culturally, uh, Holland has become a lot more LGBTQ friendly. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a Latino. And like, frankly, growing up here, it was a little bit scary on that front. Um, and now, like, that that type of that type of like permeable racism isn't it, it doesn't really exist at that level. There's still very real racism. There's still historic um, you know laws and regulations that were built by what I consider to be racist um, city councils way back in the day or whatever. But it's not permeated throughout the culture, and that's dude I think because of business. And when it comes mm -hmm. to um, the types of stuff. Uh, that, you know, frankly, is unacceptable um, when it comes to running a campaign. I think it's going to be the same type of things are going to be happening when it comes to running a county or running a, a townships or the city. And I think the people are going to respond. You know, we got two years, um, six months if we want to do a recall, two years to see what happens. And if I, if we're wrong, um, if I'm wrong, and uh, it's not like that, and uh, the the new commission is like the best thing that's ever happened to, to West Michigan and tourists flock here talent flocks here to uh, run the engineering jobs for all our new wonderful battery facilities that we're getting um then then you know i'll, I'll happily eat crow on top of a giant pile of money like everybody else i don't think that's what's going to happen i think that we're going to lose tours tourists we're going to lose talent because we're going to get harm to our reputation done when things like the diversity um program at the county goes away because mm -hmm. the people who got voted in didn't like diversity and I think that when that happens, we, we end up having an electoral response. And I think it's going to be huge. Um, we, we don't tolerate bigot bigotry in West Michigan. And it's just not a thing that we, we're happy to accept anymore. So. Well, and I kind of want to hit on this because I think the thing that worries me the most is all of these very extreme candidates that are running for school boards. If they get a hold of the school boards, they have control over curriculum. If they have control over curriculum, we have a big problem. And, yep. uh, you know, Jim is very big on higher education as are Mike and I, David obviously is huge on higher education because he has so many degrees. I can't count them. Um, thoughts on, on how we stop this pro proliferation into the, the school boards. I, I, I'll take that one for a moment. <laughs> I thought you might. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I did an interview with the local newspaper um a couple of weeks ago and they ran a feature story on the 50th anniversary of busing so uh desegregation busing in the city of lansing and in 1971 was when the um decision was handed down by the supreme court that ultimately precipitated the the integrated busing and I, the reason why i bring that up now is because you had at, at the result of that the immediate result was an absolute firestorm of opposition and you had entire school boards rec recalled um the city of lansing most of their school board was recalled uh, after they implemented a, a busing program going off of the court decisions and you have such immediate uh extremely passionate reaction to that that you had uh you know situations not that different than now in terms of people turning up who normally wouldn't at a seemingly innocuous school board meeting that was no longer innocuous it was sort of the opposite and the school board elections then 
turned into equally combative uh, events when that happened. Now, fast forward the hands of time 50 years later, and the interesting thing about this is now you have school board elections that are extremely politicized. I live here in Lansing and um, not in the city of Lansing, but we have a, a school board in a town not far from here called Grand Ledge. And Grand Ledge is, is David and Mike, you'll get this. It's a lot like Plainwell, okay? And pretty much the same proximity to Lansing as the Plainwell is to Kalamazoo and similar economic relationship. And, and Grand Ledge has undergone a big transformation over the last few years, especially because of schools of choice. So this gets me to um, kind of what you're asking uh, David, when you're talking about curriculum and, and once the school board gains control of this, they can control the curriculum and then all bets are off. Well, it's interesting because schools of choice has taken a totally different dynamic that never existed before and inserted it into school districts like Grand Ledge. So school of choice has been around for a while in Michigan. I actually think it goes back almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it means that if you want to send your child to a school out of district if that school has a seat for your child has the means to provide the education for him and you can get the child to school you can do it and so people are not a lot it's not like it's every parent but there's a fair amount of parents that take advantage of this and and so you have kids from the city of lansing that have been going to grand ledge public schools and that has totally changed the uh, dynamic within the school. But see, who gets to elect the school board? It's right. only the people that live in the district. Right. So now you have children that are going to a school, but then their parents don't get to have a say in who elects the school board. And so the, you're, what's happening is this disconnect is developing, and it's not only because of school choice. Politics obviously play a big role in this too, where regardless of school of choice, people within a district are starting to use the avenue of the school board as a means of fighting all of these social causes mm -hmm. that have made their way into politics at every level. And, and I think that the idea of a school board controlling curriculum is one that has always been controversial because you have curriculum standards that are set by the State Board of Education, but then you also have local control. So school boards can take up issues such as this. And with the K-12 school, it's there isn't the latitude of let's just say academic freedom right. that exists <laughs> to a greater extent, although it's not a, a you know carte blanche academic freedom at an institution of higher ed. The problem I have with this, this is what I worry about, is you have, Michigan has had a history of being a state where the state legislature and local school boards have not taken the direct hand that other states have in deciding curriculum. So the Texas state legislature, mm -hmm. the lawmakers, they decide what the curriculum is in Texas public schools, right down to the textbooks. Yep. A few years ago, they decided that Thomas Jefferson was out and Ronald Reagan was in. And they made the decision and that's what the books 
that were going to be allowed in Texas public schools were to say, state of Michigan has a curriculum that's set by the State Board of Education that has to be agreed to by the state legislature, but it's, it's a curriculum that's specific to the standardized tests that the schools are required to administer. So it's not the depth that a place like Texas would have. My concern is it may get to that point. And people are nowadays bantering about a lot of um, things in school board meetings. Joe, you mentioned one of them, um, LGBTQ rights. Uh, critical race theory is a word that every time I hear it mentioned, the person mentioning it probably has absolutely no idea what it means. <laughs> None whatsoever. Have never read a single book on it, nor care to. And therefore, you have people making extremely uninformed decisions out of either sheer ignorance or a combination of sheer ignorance and uh, overtly political ambition. And that is going to have a very detrimental impact on children. Mm -hmm. uh, follow-up question I have, um, but before I ask that question, um, Joe, I do have one follow-up for you. Uh, so part of the tradition here on Bucks and Brews, or as I think we're calling it tonight, um, Votes and Views, <laughs> is that we share what we're drinking with the with the crowd. So if you could just tell us uh, what's in the bottle there. Uh, this is Dragon's Milk Reserve awesome. Triple Mash. It, it's delicious. You're nodding. You know what it is. I thought it's I recognized the bottle, but I couldn't be sure. <laughs> I, no. I just cleaned out my car, cleaned out my car this weekend, and uh, for Halloween, all of a sudden, I found this bottle. It was a Dragon's Milk, uh, like Snickerdoodle, and cocoa nibs, and, all, and I was like, "Oh, this is great!" I was like, "I'm so glad this was under my seat." I was like, "There we go." Um, my buddy's like, "That's been in your car for two months," and I was like, "Well, it was under the seat. I didn't know it was there. <laughs> Who goes under their seat that often, right?" You're still gonna drink it. I already drank it. Oh, of I course. Got drank, <laughs> I got drank on uh, Halloween. Okay. So, um, so you have a follow up? I do. Question? Yeah. Just okay. um, so, uh, Josh and Joe, you're both you both are obviously on the ballot, um, and election day being six days away, um, you know, um, nationally, there's a lot of focus on Michigan because. Um, Reproductive health care is on the ballot with Proposal 3. My question for both of you is, is democracy on the ballot this time around, and why or why not? I mean, democracy is always on the ballot, I think, and I'm sorry I'm jumping right in here, but democracy is always on the ballot, I think, when it comes to the, um, especially when it comes to the governor's seat, for some reason in Michigan, that seems to be a, a, a critical role. Mm -hmm. um, I. I got my kickstart in Michigan politics. I mean, I've been working in politics for a few years at the time, but I got my kickstart working as the strategist uh, behind Proposal 2 that ended gerrymandering in Michigan mm -hmm. in 2018. And uh, I, I, I think that a lot of the work that went into the language of Proposal 2, which was before I started on that campaign, my work was mostly on building their petition program. But the work that went into building that language was um, work that they called Ingler proofing it <laughs> because the governor has a lot of capability uh -huh. of, of moving budgets around, moving departments around, moving um, organizations within departments around uh, that can undermine the way that a ballot initiative can work. Now, um, real briefly, Michigan's constitution begins with the words, all political power is inherent in the people. And that was a key phrase when it came to the Supreme Court decision over whether or not the anti-gerrymandering proposal was gonna move forward to be on the ballot. Um, and uh, part of that framework is the idea that the ballot initiative process itself in Michigan is a core democratic process that is real, absolute <laughs> democracy inside the yep. state. And uh, the, the governor, frankly, has a lot of wiggle room to either allow that that process 
uh, to go forward organically or to intervene. Uh, when we see someone like Governor Whitmer, where she she will step up and she will file lawsuits uh, when like mm -hmm. the 1931 law kicks in, for instance. Yep. But um, when it came to the ballot initiatives, even the opposition ballot initiatives, there were traditional fights where Mark Brewer would try to uh, go to the courts and say, hey, they're um, their wording is off here. They they uh, messed up, and we need to reject the whole thing. And the courts would put him and Hogg give the people, the plaintiffs, the chance to. I'm sorry, the defendants, the chance to um, fix the language, and then they'd go out in the field with it. Like that's normal, like friction uh, when it comes to those ballot right. issues. The governor didn't derail those. What what did derail some of them was uh, some bad signature gathering on the parts of the organizations that ran the petitions. But Governor Whitmer didn't even step in to to do the types of things that John Engler did when he was. Right. Uh, governor to ballot initiative proposals. Now, um, I you know, frankly, um, I think David probably has some better examples historically, but the easy one for me is the emergency management law, uh, where we have the legislature passing this law, ballot initiative proposal coming into play to reverse it, and then the legislature passing the law again in lame duck uh, with uh, um, a budget rider that made it so they couldn't use a ballot initiative process yeah. to undo it. And then you know, frankly, that's how we end up with like the Flint River becoming the source of water for mm -hmm. Flint and the Flint water crisis. Yeah, um, so. and I'll just super quickly add, uh, you know, two things to that. The historical context, um, you're absolutely right, Joe, and Michigan's uh, constitution is written in a way that there's a quirk in it when it comes to, so ballot initiatives are you're voting to amend uh, or not amend the state constitution. And the way the state's constitution is written, part of the amendment process is the state legislature itself can initiate a ballot proposal, yep. and the state legislature itself can take a uh, proposal that has been approved to go on the ballot, and if they enact a law that is close to what that ballot proposal's intent is, then it can supersede the ballot proposal. Yep. So this, the legislature did this with the minimum wage ballot proposal that was going to be on the ballot a few years ago. The um, emergency manager one was a really, um, I mean, the voters voted and the state legislature said, we know better than you. Mm -hmm. So we're going to overturn your vote by some of the, well, constitutionally allowable things they could do. And then we ended up getting the emergency manager system, which of course, uh, the fallout of that is still around with the Flint water crisis. That law, however, is still on the books. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of long-term consequences of this happening. The Michigan Constitution was rewritten in the early 60s for the purpose of having one document that would be universally accepted by the state and not be amended again. It was <laughs> voted with like a 7,000 vote majority. It was extremely yep. slim. And it's been amended, I think, 38 or 39 times since then. So. And Josh, I know you're somewhat limited as to what you can um, talk about as a judicial candidate. So please feel free to take that question in any direction you'd like. I, I appreciate the, the the inherent flexibility in that statement. Um, I, I, you know, so Joe took my answer. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say the same thing uh, that, you know, democracy is always on the ballot. Um, and I think it also it's 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 in between the times we cast the ballots too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that that it really is civic engagement and being aware of what your government is doing, why it's making those choices, where the influences come from, how our national and local debates are framed or 
cornered or you know directed and and uh, you know being aware of those things um just just being naturally well informed about the nature of debate uh, as well as you know the the facts and circumstances relevant to those debates um, is really critical um and and so I yeah I would say it's every election and and in between too it's it's a full-time job although you don't have to obsess over it as <laughs> many people on this call clearly do including probably <laughs> me but but yeah that's a it's a big question and I think it's something that the electorate and the public generally always has to be conscious of because it's always hanging by a thread in the kind of <clears throat> ecological timeline uh, uh ways um and and then even more so uh periodically in there well and i i kind of want jim's answer on this so every 50 60 years i think we hit a portion where things are very chaotic mm -hmm. and i would say you know we're at that point now like we were in the 60s with uh segregation and and race relations um how how dire could this be well i think that it's i, I think all indications are from my my knowledge and experience and i would you know defer to david in terms of some of the finer points from a historical perspective but i think we're at an inflection point probably like we haven't seen since uh the civil war um and the reason for that is that you just have you have so many people that are i mean literally in the tens of millions of people that seem to prefer personality over the rule of law. And I think when we, and maybe this is a question for, for Josh as well, um, when, when the rule of law loses out to personalities, that's when democracy becomes endangered. And, or, I mean, there are other inflection points as well. There are other things that can cause that. But I think that that's, that's the danger that I see, is that you have people who are, people for public office that are openly advocating for, um, for essentially uh, to ignore law and to or, or to ignore the political system, thereby um, putting at risk the rule of law and and and, and in favor of um, and not even really policy prescription, but really more again, it really I think it's really more um, it's based on personality, right? It's 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 um, you know I, I think we're I think we're in danger of of really becoming um, authoritarian, probably as as much or more so, um, certainly since uh, more so than since the 1960s, um, where I don't think really authoritarianism was hanging in the balance or, or was, was was sort of hanging like Damocles' sword. But I think it's I think our democracy is at the biggest risk since um, since the 1860s. So yeah, I, yeah that, that those are the things that I worry about. Right? Is 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 once because once somebody does it, somebody you know, and and we sort of you know hung on. Um, despite the, the the attempts in in 2020 to to sort of overthrow that election, to overturn that election, that lie is still being spread. People are buying into that, and that failed. But as long as we allow those types of activities to continue, and, and that and that's why Steve Bannon's strategy of kind of building from the, the you know the precinct level up and at the um, board of education level up. At, so it's all these local races that that, 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 that the strategy is win, win these races. It's really who controls the elections, right? It's it's the it's the it's the it's uh, the local elections board. It's the uh, secretary of state, uh, you know, and, and governor seats. So I, yeah, that's 
from my perspective, um, I think that I, I, I is it. I, so what I'm trying to figure out is is it as bad as, as it seems, or is the pendulum going to swing quickly the other way? Because my 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 worry is is where and where is the pendulum? Are we at the apex of it, or is is there more to go? So that's those are the kind of questions that keep me awake at night. Well, I know David has a point to make here, but. Some of us are old enough here that we were on the internet in its infancy. <laughs> and unfortunately, as good as the internet can be, we have an issue where ignorant people are emboldened by their ignorance and love to spout it out constantly. Well, I think the, the, the big hope of the internet in its infancy was it was going to be the democratization of knowledge as opposed to the democratization of misinformation, right? Yeah, so. yeah I I echo most of what you said, I, I think that the historical comparisons to the 1850s, the decade that preceded the Civil War, are frightening. Right. Um, you know, the the Civil War, of course, is a war that was fought over slavery because the great compromises that have been reached over slavery, as awful as that was, um, broke down. And so that was the major political issue of the day. Some viewed it as an economic issue. Some viewed it as a moral issue. Some viewed it as a political issue. It was mm -hmm. all three. And ultimately, it broke the country apart. The thing that really did the U.S. Uh, unity and more than anything was when people ignored the rule of law. Yep. Supreme Court decisions were made. They were ignored. And, and the uh, laws were passed to either uh, protect the rights of slave owners or states passed laws to try to thwart the rights of slave owners. You had a great conflict between state and federal law. You had people ignoring the laws that they didn't agree with and following the laws that they did. Mm -hmm. And the judiciary, the history of the judiciary in the United States is one that, and, and Josh, I'm, I'm sure you know this being an attorney, is one that a lot of it is built on tradition and precedent. So the US Constitution grants Congress the authority to create and regulate through the approval of justices, through the size of the, ju the judiciary, the entire federal judiciary. And it took several decades of the Supreme Court existing before that court actually had power because people simply wouldn't follow the rulings. They just ignore them. And the Supreme Court had no means to, uh, to enforce its law, its rulings. And so if a judge makes a ruling, if there's no uh, means to enforce that ruling, then it's great. The ruling's out there, but what are you going to do with it? It took decades of precedent and people understanding the reason why the concept of judicial review was such an important precedent for the court to establish for itself before it gained that power. But then that power was lost in the decade leading up to the Civil War, because again, people ignored the rulings of the court to such an extent that it essentially lost all of its power. The court itself was very much to blame for this, especially under the chief justiceship of Roger Tawney and the Dred Scott decision. And so the at, at that highest level, um, there's always been this fine line between um, what the constitution says and what precedent has established. So it's it's a it's a tricky time to be in. I mean, I I I ask myself the same question: is it really that bad? And I, years ago, I had this conversation with my mother, actually. We were flying uh, across the ocean, so we were on a plane together for a long time. We had a nice chat. And I asked her, I said, Mom, you know, um, 
a lot of people your age look very nostalgic at the 1960s. I says, but you know, people my age, I look at the 1960s and I, I see Martin Luther King Jr. being assassinated. I see Robert F. Kennedy being assassinated. I see John F. Kennedy being assassinated. I see riots in front of the Pentagon, massive war protests, 50 some thousand people being killed in Vietnam that were Americans. I, riots in the streets. Mom, <laughs> what am I missing here? Was it really that good of a time to be alive? And she laughed because she knows me, obviously. But she said, she said, well, <laughs> yeah, there were certainly parts about that decade that one uh, maybe isn't so nostalgic about if you look at it that way. I, and not to make light of this, but I think some parts of, of the process that the United States is going through right now have always been here. But mm -hmm. I'm very alarmed when I hear um, for example, the gubernatorial debate uh, that took place last week, the opening, I don't know what you would call it, <laughs> monologue by Tudor Dixon. If you have not seen that, yeah. I, I encourage you, if you are a uh, imbiber of alcoholic beverages, to perhaps have one by your side. <laughs> if you are like me and you are not, you would want to cool it on a coffee before <laughs> you watch this because you are going to be amazed. and and. Anybody who's listening to this program, even if you're the most absolute avid partisan, take the partisanship out of your mind for a moment if you're able to do it and actually listen to, listen to every word that Tudor Dixon said. Because what she said was, if the Democratic Party gets elected, well, they're already in the governor's office. They will have all of you in chains, and there will be white slavery in this state. That's what she said. Mm -hmm. Go back and watch it or listen to it. And that is rhetoric that, in my mind, just absolutely far and away surpasses anything I've ever heard in any Michigan gubernatorial campaign. And it is one that I think one should should be very concerned with. Um. I want to interrupt here because I know we have limited time with Joe. He's sure. got about seven minutes left with us. Joe, why should people vote for you? That was my next why question. Why should people vote for me? I mean, like that—that's a—that's a local—that's a localized issue. And you know, my pitch to voters is that I grew up in the area. My brother and I used to ride our bicycles around. And this seems—I don't—I don't want this to seem too wholesome, right? But it's the truth. We used to ride our bicycles around. My parents didn't have to worry at all. And now it's not like that. Like our roads were built for thirty years and a hundred thousand residents ago. Um, and I'm focused on issues that really matter to voters, like road safety. Um, the other issue that's really important to me specifically around here is housing affordability, and it's something that I've worked on in some of the most uh, some of the most housing uh, scarce places in the country. We're talking about like the Bay Area in California and Denver and Colorado, and the situations over there are dire. But the thing that I want folks to know, even if they're not going to vote for me, even if they're not in my district, is that absolutely can happen in West Michigan if we don't do a better job of building housing for the workers that we're inviting to our community to run our factories. Um, and I, I think that um, when it comes to the simplicity of the reasons why to vote for me, they're road safety, they are affordable housing, they are uh, water availability, which some folks don't, don't really understand is not um, their water is extremely scarce in Michigan. Um, actually, um, we're surrounded by these great lakes, but those water tables go a mile or two in and everything else has to get replenished by rainwater. So if you drive from Holland to Grand Rapids through like Jamestown, Georgetown area, and you see the development in Georgetown, 
Um, Jamestown is what Georgetown used to look like. Mm -hmm. And uh, now there are 60,000 people in a township in West Michigan in Ottawa County. And if you ask every legislator in the Capitol where Georgetown is, they will not be able to tell no you. Like 90% of them will not yep. be able to tell you. It's the largest township by population in Ottawa County, the fastest growing county in the state. So uh, when it comes to having an understanding of the key facts on the ground, um, there's one choice between me and my opponent. And when it comes to focus on issues that matter, there's one choice between me and my opponent. When it comes to not being distracted by national level shining objects, uh, <laughs> there's clearly only one choice between me and my opponent. So that's why people in Ottawa County District 2, uh, Holland Township should vote for me, Joe Spalding. Awesome. Um, and I want to ask this, Joe, as a follow-up. I also said because you drink good beer. That's true, too. Um, let's say they vote in Lucy. Yep. Your, your next steps. Yeah. So when it comes to when it comes to Ottawa impact, they are going to have the majority in the county commission. So there's no there's literally probably there's probably no material difference between me winning and losing here. So you're not like people are not going to vote for me to secure or stop a majority for for Ottawa impact on the county commission. That's not a reality. Um, I, you know, I'm going to have a presence at that county commission now uh, over the next two years, no matter what, uh, when it comes to those commission seats. These are two-year seats. After this year, they kick up, and they're going to be four-year seats, and that's a, a lot more of a big deal because we're two cycles away at that point from redistricting again, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, when it comes to county redistricting, that's something that's super important to me, and that's you know another eight years out. But we have to make sure that folks see what Ottawa Impact is doing uh, when they take the majority in the commission, whether I'm at the commission table or not, and we have to elevate the conversations that happen there. Uh, so folks know who to vote for in 2024. So that's what's next for me. Everything this year really has been focused on 2024, um, uh, more than 2022 anyway, uh, when it comes to my profession, uh, when it comes to working uh, you know, on campaigns. I work for uh, a group called Distill Social. They're a PAC that focuses on social media on the other side of the state. I actually put a comment in uh, the chat on Twitch when we were talking about oh, Grand Ledge, because there was a um, you know, that, that situation has been brewing for a long time. Sorry to ADD back to something that was said, you know, 20 minutes ago, but I cut a 36 right. minute documentary about the situation in Grand Ledge, uh, and kind of, uh, a, a school board meeting that happened there mm -hmm. in yep. 2020, uh, where they went over 30 years of like really, really horrifying racism in the district, and um, over seven hours of testimony. Yeah. And fired a superintendent too. It's, it's, it's messy. Yeah, so Metcalf's lawyer screamed my name at his due process hearing. That was a thing that happened. So that's that's uh, been in the paper all around here. Uh, well, for the last two years, in one form or another. So yeah, yeah, I will say if there's one one place that has actively and done the right thing about against fighting against the, the whack jobs that are running for school board, uh, those folks, it's Grand Ledge activists, and they've dubbed them the Kitty Litter Caucus. They've not they have not stopped holding their feet to the fire. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they uncovered quite a bit of uh, dirt, particularly around that Jason Devenbauer guy. That guy is like yeah. probably one of the worst people running for office in the state. And he's running for Grand Ledge School Board. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, yeah. No, my, my next step is to track the Republicans on the far right and make sure that we keep continuing to change the political landscape of Michigan for the better, regardless of what happens in this election. Well, fantastic. Thank you, Joe. I know yeah. you've got another uh, interview and we want to yeah. give you a couple of minutes to take a break if you need it. So uh, we really appreciate you uh, joining and um, we wish you the best of luck. Appreciate it. It's been a uh, fun. Cheers, guys. Cheers. You, Cheers, Joe. Joe. Thank you, Joe. Good luck. Good luck. And Josh, I guess maybe the same question for you. Um, why, why, why Josh? What, why Josh Hilgert for 
circuit court? So I think, you know, the, my case would be, I have a reason that I want to be in the office. I think that there's a lot of, you know, that, <laughs> that I'd see the judiciary as poised to make a critical shift from viewing its job as uh, an adjudicator of, of individuals to uh, public service for intersecting with individuals' lives. Uh, it already halfway knows that. I feel as though the court, you know, it's, it's it's our judges, even our prosecutor and our sheriff. We understand all of us that we're encountering people who have trauma, who are have just so little resilience, and yet we have a system that is kind of set up for judgment and shame. Mm -hmm. And so we try to put, you know, like you know, foam rubber on the rusty edges of it to try to make it a little nicer. Uh, but I think we're on the precipice of trying to say, how do we just look at this and and try to process human beings a little differently? Um, and I think my experience of the defender, my engagement in the community, um, certainly I have, I have, um, I think gone further and 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 pushed harder and understand better uh, what that kind of shift looks like and what that population wants and would bring in the community to speak for itself with their own lived experiences. And I think I think Kalamazoo's ready for that. I think that's what it wants. I think I am the candidate for that if people want that. Um, and so we'll find out Tuesday if I'm right. I think we have uh, we finally have a public defender on the Supreme Court, right? And uh, I think right. that I think that you know the underrepresentation of people who have um, who have uh, defended in indigent cases in the judiciary, you know, in judgeships is is a and it's it's itself a crime, right? The fact that um, it's mostly people, you know, either. Um, um, uh, I would say, uh, you know, the, what we think of as the high-paid defense attorney or or pro prosecutors that end up in judgeships, and I think that that experience, from my perspective, is invaluable um, for for a district or circuit court judge. Well, and as somebody in Josh's district, when I was researching these positions, mm -hmm. that's one of the things that drew me to him is the fact that okay, this is somebody that is helping people that need help the most. Absolutely, and. Those are my values, so that's who I'm looking to vote for. So I, I guess you know, just as a final thought for me on this is, um, you know, the, these are nonpartisan. You're you're in a, you're in a nonpartisan race, and I'm not sure what the ballot looks like for, uh, for for the, for your district, for the county, or the district specifically. Sometimes judicial races are on the back, right? So I'd just like to remind everyone when you're voting, don't forget about the things on the back. I think people are flipping the page over because of proposals, but make sure you vote in the nonpartisan judicial races as well. Thank you, Jim. Mm -hmm. and thank you, David. Absolutely. Um, I, I too, I have to leave. Um, we, I've, I've meant to tell you before we popped on, um, but we had a, a passing in our family oh, that was sorry. a bit, thanks. It was, it was as good as you could hope. Um, you know, it's rearranged our schedule a little bit. Um, but uh, before I pop off, I want to give you any chance to give me one last, you know, hard question or anything you want to say while you got me here because I didn't give you fair warning. 
No, it's fine. I say thank you so much for joining yep. us. Uh, go we take care of your family. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We're, we're, we're a family first kind of people. Absolutely. Um, and then say when you win, uh, if you wouldn't mind joining us again so you can talk about your victory. Um, <laughs> I'd you know, love to come uh, back. You guys are great. This is a great conversation and good questions too. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm, we're glad you enjoyed it. Um, yeah. We are definitely staying on. So we'll say goodbye to Josh. Thank you again for joining us. Yep. Thank you, goodbye, Josh. Josh. Good thank you, gentlemen. So we have a lot that we can still dissect. I, I have David for another hour. Um, I do. Have, I actually have to go here soon too. Do you? A few minutes. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jim has a few minutes before he has to run away. Um, so I want to talk about some of these things that, you know, are, are making news mm -hmm. that are stupid as shit. <laughs> um, I have, I've kept the cursing down while we had candidates. All bets are off. Um, the civility goes <laughs> it definitely does you're talking about the, like you're talking about the bat shit crazy that shit crazy crazy correct right? um yeah. supposedly furries running around in school using litter boxes yep. this shit ain't happening people okay <laughs> I, i'm i'm sorry to dispel your stupidity but there's nobody running around using a litter box in school because there i don't know any janitor that would clean that shit right? up and i know some janitors uh, uh, the yeah and you know one of the interesting things that popped in my mind when um, right as Joe was concluding his thoughts with us about Grand Ledge, and I didn't even think I would this would come up in our discussion, but a lot of people don't know this. Um, Grand Ledge, its most its its claim to fame is uh, a Michigan governor who's from there, mm -hmm. Frank Fitzgerald. Yep. And uh, Fitzgerald was governor in the 1930s, two non-consecutive terms, uh, and back then governors were elected for two-year terms but he died in office and pretty much half the town is named after him he had some really uh ugly ties to a kkk type organization in michigan called the black legion mm -hmm. uh, including some family ties and people that he uh, put in public office well while he was governor and so grand ledges had it's had a um an interesting past that that every now and then seems to resurface when it comes to well race mm -hmm. and politics and intertwining and, and and i bet you joe knew that because he it's definitely a guy that's done his homework but he he had to leave and i certainly wasn't going to throw that out to him mm -hmm. and give him 10 seconds to right. reply um since you do have to leave us jim uh thoughts on on this election i mean you've given a lot so yeah, far but I, I really do think that um in a very real sense, and, and I agree with both of the candidates that, that were on, that democracy is always on the ballot. But I think that um, we're at an inflection point, right? As, as we talked about this you know, before, um, I just think it's so important that everyone um, just get out. And, you know, and again, I'm, I'm a former Republican and not just like a, a Republican voter. Like I was an elected member of the Republican Party in Michigan. When I say elected, I mean, I was elected as an officer of the party by mm -hmm. By you know, by the by those precinct delegates, right? That Steve Bannon is trying to, is you know, that um, encourage people to to run. So for folks that don't know the way that the party system works, is that precinct delegates, people are elected at the at at the local level at the at the at your voting at your polling place, um, you elect a certain number of delegates to a county convention. That county convention then elects delegates to the state convention, which in turn elects delegates to the national convention. So this really all does start at the grassroots level. And for the first time in my life, just to tell you how important these things are and why I'm so worried, for the first time in my life, not only did I see people campaigning for precinct delegate, 
in my precinct, but people spending money. Mm-hmm. And it was money that was not coming out of their pockets, right? This is money that's coming from um, uh, organizations that are that are interested in um, in, in basically in the Republican, you know, in Republican Party becoming an author- authoritarian, uh, you know, or, or group, and that scares the hell out of me. Um, and I think that there's, you know, that th- I think a lot of people are being misled. Um, as we talked about, right? There's the there's the there's the crazy, there's the stupid, and there's the batshit crazy, right? Stupidity, and I think a lot of people don't realize that you know they're they're buying into this whole idea that this is about the kids, that this is about the you know the election or whatever. It's not. It's about a limit, a small number of people securing power for themselves for various reasons, um, and ignoring the will of the people and the rule of law to boot. And that to me is is the thing that worries me the most about about say the last four to five years well and you and i talked about this the other day so you know when when we're looking at kind of this precipice that we're at um you know you you take those batshit crazy people and their ideas of what are out there and the one i love the most is antifa does all this this stuff Mm -hmm. and they forget the fact that if somebody's Antifa, that means they're anti-fascist, like my grandfather was when he landed on Normandy in right, 1945. Right, yeah. That's anti-fascist, right. for sure. Um, you know, and and they sit there and they throw that around like it's a bad thing. Right. Um, fascists are bad people. Always, always, always have been. Always. There's no middle ground there. So if you want to run around and say Antifa is this, Antifa is that, you can do that all you want, and and. Again, the organization doesn't exist. Right. They're just people that are against fascism. Like well, and pro-justice and things like mm-hmm. that, right? There's there's various agendas going on with that. But and calling themselves Antifa is um is uh I mean, I think that's a sort of a brilliant move politically because there is some other stuff going on there. But yeah, it's not it's not like this is an organized um group of people that are out to turn your children into um, you know, Black Panthers or into uh uh, you know, or, or to or turn them gay or something like that, right? That's not the idea. Mm-hmm. It's it's they're they're in opposition to injustice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that's really important to note. Um, okay. you know, over twenty one million people have voted already in Michigan or just in general. Oh, in no, it general, can't be, it can't be in Michigan. So no, not twenty one people in Michigan. Yeah, in the United States. Yeah. Well, that doesn't surprise me. I'm one of those. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it, it, I will be tomorrow. <laughs> I'm gonna drop my ballot off on the way to work. Um, I, the, the, um, the voting from home, what we used to call it absentee mm-hmm. ballot, that's, you know, that's something that in most of the country, when you ask anybody, but, uh, a firebrand, um, extremist politician, people support, they support overwhelmingly, uh, Arizona has one of the highest, um, absentee ballot rates in the entire country and yep. historically it's been one of the most Republican voting states in the union mm-hmm. and um, it was a Republican legislature that got uh, absentee balloting for everybody yep. in Arizona so I mean it's it's very popular the reason why people are opposed to it now of course is because the people that are opposed to it primarily are fearful that it's going to increase voter turnout right. and lead to people voting them out of office mm-hmm. they're also afraid that when people have a ballot in their hand for a month they actually have time to research exactly. all of those people down the ballot yeah. the ones on the back side of the ballot uh-huh. you mentioned because they do and it's not oh yeah today's election day you show up to the poll 
You got a ballot that's almost as long as the Bible. And halfway through it, you don't know who any of those people are. You don't know what the positions they're running for are. So you either fill in Mickey Mouse in the write-in or you leave it blank or you close your eyes and scratch a name. And that is not, um, you know, it's not a good way of, of running an election. Well, with absentee ballot, people actually have time to figure out who these people yeah. are and what they do. And I actually think that's part of the reason why um, some of these positions that normally don't get a lot of press have. And, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the um, party delegates to the county mm -hmm. conventions. I actually was um, over at a friend's house earlier this year. He lives in my neighborhood. So I walked my dog over to chat with him. And, and he said to me, he says, now I'm going to be on the ballot for, <laughs> uh, you know, in this case, it's the Democratic Party mm -hmm. in Ingham County. I'm going to be in, on a ballot, Democratic Party, Ingham County. And, and uh, you'll see my name on there. He says, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but you'll see my name on there. And that <laughs> is me. Yeah, it's really interesting about that. I've never seen these be competitive before. So uh, first time I actually was on, I was, uh, on the ballot a couple of times to be a, a precinct delegate as well. And I never had any opposition. Uh, the first time I think I was living in Ann Arbor and it, I, there was something like three open seats from the precinct and there was just my name. And then another time, which is not uncommon in Ann Arbor, you know, I was running as, as a Republican. And then another time um, when I was still um, a member of the party, it was, uh, I think there was two open seats and I was the only name on it, right? So even if I got, even if I voted for myself, that was, I was guaranteed to be a, uh, a delegate to the county convention. And this year in Byron Township, where I live, um, in Byron Center, there were three openings for my precinct and nine people on the ballot and they were literally campaign. I mean, lawn signs, mailers, you know, um, things like that. And I've just never seen anything like that before. But again, it's this, Steve Bannon's strategy of, of, you know, flood the zone of bullshit and, uh, and get the, you know, get people who don't know what the hell they're doing, mm -hmm. stir them up with misinformation, get them on the ballot, and then you can control the party from the ground up. And that's what they're doing. Oh, that's why we see CRT as such a hot button issue. Yep. Yeah. Because they're, <laughs> they're going to turn everybody against the white kids. Right. Um, yeah, they're not teaching that in, in what? Well, race theory is taught only in law school. It is. And so yeah, it's a theory. Yeah, well, and it's not not only that, but it's a it's a framework for um for, for the like for the justice system. It has nothing to do with with teaching anybody about um you know that that white people are evil or anything like that. It's a it's a judicial. I mean, it may, it's a judicial framework is what it is. Yeah. It has nothing to do with what they're describing, and it's something that I don't remember that Tucker Carlson or somebody at Fox News brought up. And everybody just kind of glommed onto that term and, and it's, it's meaningless. Well, and, you know, I know my education history wise at Plainwell, I know where we stopped. You know, we didn't talk about the Vietnam War. We never got there. I don't think we talked about World War II. We didn't get there. We spent so much time, you know, in the first hundred years of this country that we didn't get to anything that, you know, yeah. actually affected any of us. We, when I was in school, we actually had a course called American Conflict, which is about World War II and about Vietnam. And one called America Between the Wars, which was basically, it was about the 50s, but it's also about the uh, social change in the 60s, because you never got to in your in your mm -hmm. your uh, survey level course, right? Your your intro level course. Yeah, and I took a an AP history class in high school, and and um, that's when I first learned about some of those things. But Vietnam was, you know, that was a fresh wound. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of people that taught in our building that were Vietnam vets. Mm -hmm. Or of that age for sure. So it was a it was a difficult subject to teach. And I 
I, I can understand that very well. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not unsympathetic to that, but the, yeah, critical race theory, I think what, with the Tucker Carlson's of the world, I mean, they are very good at taking something that, that they know darn well that their listeners, their viewers will, will just know absolutely nothing about, but it'll have yep. one or two words. Yep. Used to be called dog whistle politics. Mm-hmm. They threw the dog whistle out. They don't need it anymore. Now they can get a microphone and shout exactly yep. what they think. And so you've got the, the, the British have a term for this, um, this type of, of uh, person that, that the Tucker Carlson's the world aim for. They call him a gammon. Mm-hmm. Gammon is British word for ham and a ham's red. And a gammon-faced individual is just red and screaming and so pissed off at everything in the world that he thinks is wrong. And usually these are people that have benefited the most from the social economic structure of society. So they they theoretically should be the people that are least wound up. But it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson, right. oh, I know that I know what's going to really piss these people off. We'll tell them that they're children are being taught that white people are evil and they're mm-hmm. going to enslave um, or other white people if they get into power and use critical race theory and well okay wait a minute here let's step back do you actually know what critical race theory is right. critical race theory is being critical of race well no that's not actually what it is right. it doesn't matter that the conversation if it even got that far it went in there yeah and it's, so it's now short-circuited yeah and and you've got i mean i hate to use this term because it's overused but it, in this case, it's apt. I, they weaponize things they know nothing about and take advantage of people's ignorance, yep. insert this into debates where it actually has no need to be because it's not an issue that would ever be actually used, such as right. you know, legal critical race theory in a public school, but yet they do it. And then all of a sudden, you've got the news media plastering this terminology all over every story, and, and you got the community whipped up in a frenzy. Ah, wow, we've accomplished what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. If we're the uh, weaponizers that sought to uh, to get people on our side through this. And I see it happening in a lot of a lot of issues, not just uh, critical race theory, but obviously the um, you know, gay rights, LGBTQ, mm-hmm. which Joe was talking about, that's that's the same thing. I mean, we had um I can't remember what school it was around here, but I think seven or eight years ago, oh my God, they're going to build a unisex bathroom in the school. Do you know what that means? Yeah, it means a bathroom that's got a door that locks and has one toilet in it. Right, exactly. That's what it means. Yeah, if it's you know, an airport, it's like it doesn't mean the men and women are going to go to the bathroom at the same time. <laughs> exactly. And and I'm thinking to myself, don't take your kids into a restaurant bathroom in Europe. You're not going to, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and even before that, I mean, there are, you know, places for the last, what, 15, 20 years have had those family bathrooms. So, exactly. again, yeah, yeah. a much more friendly place for a dad to take his daughter who's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or just to have to more room to change your kids' diaper. Yeah. yeah, and it's funny because I I um remember driving out east a few years ago, and I pulled off to use the men's room on the Ohio Turnpike, and which is a horrible road to drive on for a yeah, lot I'm of sorry. reasons. But um, anyways, I uh, you know I'm in the bathroom doing my business, and there's two women in there cleaning. Nobody bad an eye at it. You know, mm-hmm. they're like, I got to clean the john and my shift's almost up. So I don't care yep. if there's men in here. <laughs> I'm going to come in here, mop the floor and clean the sinks and leave. Nobody threw a fit about that. So I can honestly say, I don't care who's in the bathroom when, you know, I got to 
take a whiz. As long as, there's, as, long as, as long as there's an open urinal, I'm fine. Yeah, I yeah that's right. But, I mean, if they're yeah. leaning over my shoulder, maybe I got an issue. Maybe I don't. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's Just right. Saying. It depends on who it is. So. <laughs> I mean, next leaning over my shoulder, I'm more was, worried about him touching. I do have to, I have to do say this, Mister Levy. You're not matchy matchy. I, I am not matchy matchy. I wore my vote shirt. I like that. I don't know if you noticed Joe's shirt. It said "Vote for the that, that was, was the beer party." That was awesome. I love that shirt. When I was on student government at Michigan, we had a. Um, it was again. This kind of gets into the whole thing about messaging people, not knowing what's going on, right? Um, they called themselves the keg party and then like five guys got together from some fraternity or whatever, called themselves a keg party. And, won, and we had um, proportional voting. They won the top five slots. Nice. They started, <laughs> they started handing out root beer barrels at all of the, cause they were like shaped like little kegs yeah. at all yeah. the student government meetings. Every time somebody asked or answered a question, you'd, they'd fling one of those root beer barrels. At you. It, was, it turned out to be a lot of fun, but, but they won simply because they called themselves the keg party. I love yeah. root beer barrels. I do too. Yeah. So I, do too. I do too. Um, I know you got to get heading out of here, Jim. Minutes, yep. Oh, you got 10 more minutes? All right. Okay. Um, because we are Bucks and Brews, uh, let's talk economy for a hot minute here. All right. Um, Nick and I talked about inflation a few weeks back, and we talked about the fact that we were in a recession because we had two straight quarters of the negative GDP. Does anybody know what the last quarter showed? I do. I don't know the number. Increase. I know there's an increase. It was growth, I think, two point five percent. Okay, yep. yeah, I thought it was about yeah. And well, I like how the first thing that the Fed does is raise interest rates and cause okay. the stock market to drop. Yep. I, I mean, they they have to get inflation under control, and even though it's it's been better the last three four months, it's still way too high. They kept the interest rates way too low for way too long. Yeah. Well, there's the whole demand side of it, right? Which is all that yeah. that can address. The issue yeah. now, and the issue that's been causing inflation primarily has been on the supply side mm -hmm. though and what can the fed do about that nothing, nothing right yeah no all they can do is control rates right so and that's it so that there's similarities but also then differences with the last time there's really high inflation in this country which was in the late 70s right and early 80s mm -hmm. and one commonality is the energy market which is yep. by and large out of the control of what anybody in one country can do and the federal reserve doesn't set oil prices Right. But then, exactly. Oh, come on. I thought the president so, said oil prices. Yeah. So, so, and of course, if, if energy prices go up, everything goes up in price mm -hmm. because you can't do anything without energy. Right. You can't anything, you can't grow crops, et cetera. But then you have just a multitude of sort of every bad thing that could happen that would lead to inflation happening. Yep. Uh, very low interest rates for a very long time. Um, crisis in world commodity markets because of grain shortages from the war mm -hmm. uh, in Ukraine energy and then on top of all that you still have the huge shock that the pandemic has caused the economy and then being a economy that has over the last 20 years relied very heavily on chinese manufacturing mm -hmm. and china has decided and and she made it very clear at the uh you know coronation of him as the next emperor of china that happened there a couple of weeks ago that yep. the economy is not the priority now no. it is our power exactly our yeah, the Chinese yep. Communist Party. So it's well, yeah, it's economic warfare too, right? So that's why you know we've had time to to iron out some of the supply chain issues, but a lot of that is is the, the Chinese are withholding that to their own fiscal detriment, but they're doing that to fuck with our supply chain. Absolutely, there. And 
one of the interesting things that's happening right now, though, is that the U.S. dollar is increasing in value dramatically. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. It lessens yep. the money supply. In that case, it's, it's sort of very old school, simple macroeconomics. Less money supply, higher interest on borrowing. That, that, mm -hmm. The currency is going to be worth more. But then you have the um, supply chain right. problems coming in, too, which has actually has an effect of increasing the value of the dollar because in this case the chinese are not purchasing or getting yep. as much american dollars through the american purchase of chinese goods mm -hmm. so that's another thing then that actually uh shrinks the amount of dollars circulating in the world economy and that's mm -hmm. part of the reason why the value of the dollar's gone up so much well it's happening with the um the various sanctions too right um within russia and things like that because they were hoarding american dollars for a while russia was absolutely as was yep. the chinese mm -hmm. as were the chinese yeah yep. so i think that what's going to be interesting about this economy is because of the demographic shift that's going on right now with all the baby boomers uh, aging out of the workforce eventually gen x being sort of sandwich generation that didn't have enough people to replace all the boomers mm -hmm. you actually are going to have at, from every economic forecasting model i've seen even if the economy enters into a serious recession you're probably still going to have low unemployment yep which is really a situation that uh i don't know if anybody that is alive right now would have ever lived through i mean the last time the u.s had this shortage this degree of a shortage of labor was after world war ii yep and and obviously most of those people are either passed away or extremely mm -hmm. old right now so it's yeah. not something certainly out of the labor market themselves <laughs> yeah yep. i i want to see if somebody can answer this because i'm ignorant to this seven so thank you um I was gonna say six <laughs> my mother says to me yesterday I, have you heard about this uh diesel shortage they're not gonna have any diesel and nobody's gonna get to drive and uh -huh. who's heard of this oh, i'm i'm obviously not everybody yeah i diesel if there's a shortage of diesel there'll be a shortage of gasoline yeah, kerosene right. of home yeah. heating oil it's it's i mean it's refined happening worldwide because yeah. of, of what's happening with with russia but i'm not i'm not aware of any particular concerns in the u.s oh yeah. supposedly I, it's running out in the next two weeks okay. and there will be none it's this yeah. next big scare thing that's yeah. going on and well yeah, that's basically I, what i told her i'd be surprised i mean and on top of that i mean the united states it's we um you know our passenger vehicles we never got nearly into the diesels that right. they did in europe and asia so I, right plus we have we have strategic reserves of both um unrefined yeah. petroleum refined petroleum and diesel so i'm not yeah, yeah. none of that's been released so I, and a lot of oil right. refineries i mean right right all the country michigan has yeah. a huge oil refinery down by detroit and there, yep. there used to be a big one up in elma it's not well, there anymore so one it, 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 it could right? be so, something yeah. as simple as supplies of things that used to make like biodiesel yeah running low yeah. yeah that's different that's not diesel that's right. yeah you know well, and i figured it was a scare tactic because you know that's oh, yeah. what we like to do here is well, scare the shit out of everybody election, yeah right? i told her i said don't worry but i'm not worried about yeah, that it's, it's, it's one of those things like it used to always be that whoever was not in power or whoever was in power the other party talked about the, how they're gonna destroy social security right like that was a perennial thing or not perennial but every you know quadrennial every mm -hmm. every time there's a presidential election the par party out of power is talking about how social security is going to be destroyed right for about two weeks before the election so yeah i think your mom's uh responding to 
another political tactic. Yeah, I I told her not to worry about it, and she usually listens to me. Luckily, yeah, it was all over. Yeah. No, it was all over social media. And- yeah. And it's the worst thing to get your news from social media people. Please don't do that. Oh, yeah. Vet yeah. your sources. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's definitely. so many dumbass shit you read on social media. Well, I, I heard that the uh, the assault at uh, at Michigan Stadium was the tunnel's fault on social media. So it must be the tunnel. That's a fact, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, that, I, cop, that cop was paid off, the one that was just standing no, there. The tunnel itself. The tunnel itself. Yeah, the tunnel. The tunnel yeah. took the helmet off and started yeah. bashing the force. Yes. <laughs> you, you didn't, so you didn't see it, do you? Or, or everything about Pelosi's husband getting, yeah, yeah. you know. Let's touch on that briefly. Briefly. I get it. <laughs> so this went from a nut job broke into the Speaker of the House's house and beat the shit out of her husband with a hammer to now the talking point is it's his gay lover and they had a lover's quarrel well, of course it is or it's something uh, now where because the security cameras at the capitol were off or whatever right yeah, yeah, yeah. i so i took a quick break at work the other day and i went out in my car and listened to the radio for a minute like i sometimes do and i had it on a station that i normally wouldn't listen to that time of day and glenn beck came on the air oh, he's a he's a he's a peach isn't he oh yeah and his <laughs> His take on it is that I'm not going to defend what had happened to Nancy Pelosi's husband, but then he went and spent 20 minutes explaining why the Democratic Party was the one who was to blame yep. for her husband having his brains bashed in with the guy with a hammer. Yep. It's quite remarkable, actually, to, to hear that, the way he, he in his own little mind, um, came up with this logic that it was horrible what happened to her. I would never defend violence, but... The Democratic Party has created a system of violence in this country that is so bad, it's so out of control. It was their fault the Capitol riots happened. Yep. It was actually Nancy Pelosi's fault that she got her gavel stolen out of her office and a bunch mm-hmm. of furniture broken and threatened with her life by guys that came into the Capitol building. And because the Democratic Party is responsible for all that, it's their fault, therefore, that her husband um, got his brains bashed in when the house was broken into. Yeah, exactly. It's like when, when we live in an, in a non-intellectual or anti-intellectual world, though, those types of things make sense to people, right? And I can't yeah. even say it's just on social media, right? No. Like there's a commercial out there right now, and I, I wish I knew exactly what it's for, but, you know, it talks about this guy, he, uh, he's, he wants to defund the police, and I don't remember the other one, but, um, you know, and then all of a sudden they're like, Yep, he just wants everybody to die and this and that. And I was like, holy crap, like you took that like two seconds because he said, Hey, I don't want the, the police to be fully funded to like, yep, I think the world should just be ran over by everybody and no cops should well, be around. Yeah, and I was go, like, holy crap, how did how did you even just do that in like a matter of two seconds? The Tudor Dixon. So, intro, yeah. Like Dave was saying earlier. Oh, I saw that. I thought yeah. this can't be I look. Literally question whether I'd woken up in a parallel universe. I did too. I yeah. did too. I I was absolutely, I, I'm not left speechless by much. That left me <laughs> speechless. I, it truly did. I, was, I was yeah. just. I did, because, yeah. Yeah, you looked at her performance in the first debate and looking at this just from an outsider point of view, after that I thought, well, you know what? That maybe it'll be a close election. I mean, she actually looked pretty good in that. And then the second debate, her opening stands up. Yep. Uh, then I thought, oh my goodness, this is terrifying. Yeah, it is. Well, you know, it's one of those things where because I'm pro-choice, I hear from all of the pro-birth people. 
that I kill babies and I suck their blood. Oh yeah. Which right, like, I have not killed one baby. Oh, but David, you have to realize that's part of the anti-Semitism that's oh, of directed course. toward you as well. Yeah, absolutely yeah, it is. People, because everybody knows you're right because you're half Jewish, right? Right. And, and everybody knows that. Right. <laughs> it's the the absurdity out there is just unfreaking oh real. Bloodline. Yeah, it's you know, it's like I've I've heard people defend, for example, Russia mm-hmm. um, in oh. the invasion of the Ukraine. One of the defenses, well, yeah, they had to go in there and, and take Zelensky out because he's a Nazi. Yeah. Vladimir Zelensky is Jewish. Right. Yes. He may be a lot of things, but I am 100 percent certain a Nazi is not one of them. Exactly. Yeah, I, yet, if I was betting on Nazis, I'd I'd bet closer on Putin than Zelensky. But, but this kind of misinformation is, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's it's everywhere. Oh, and wow. and I always tell my students the following. I always tell them, remember what Abraham Lincoln said, don't believe everything that you read online. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I remember yeah. Thomas Lockwood was one of my favorite teachers. And he had a poster in his classroom that said, don't believe everything you here and only half of what you see and i always kept that to heart because you know your eyes can play tricks on you and most people are going to lie to you anyways so you you have to really look in to find the truth and we're so emboldened with you know ignorant and stupid that they think it's you know well i think that's the real thing you're talking earlier about sort of what the internet has become right and i think what it's become is back in the day we had filters right we had a mass media but it was and it was nationalized you had local newspapers and things like that but there was a process of vetting information and now there no longer is right so now you can you know and i say information use the term loosely processing information misinformation whatever it is um but when when something you know uh, somebody shoots a video or they post something on the internet or whatever not only does that get out there faster to more people, there's no vetting process, right? So there's nobody fact-checking before it gets out there. And then you've got a, built a, a huge audience of, of people that, for whatever reason, are reinforcing that viewpoint. And so I think we the other thing that keeps me awake at night is, have we truly become a factless society? Yeah. Yeah, we'll yeah I have that. Yeah, I... A colleague of mine who very unexpectedly passed away uh, in May, and it was a total shock. I mean, I didn't even know he was sick, and um, he was only 50 or 51, but he um, he and I used to get in this conversation sometimes, and and uh, he, he said this to me one day, and it's always stuck with me. He said, just something to think about. If the U.S. was ever to be in a civil war again would we really need to fight it by shooting each other mm-hmm. maybe yeah. we would fight it the way we're fighting it right I think now we're in a civil war yeah oh, absolutely and, and and he you know when he said that i i kind of got like chills down my back mm-hmm. i was actually getting ready to go into a class and teach uh-huh. and he had just gotten out of one and we were chatting about this sort of thing talking about an article i had my students read when he said that to me, I'm, I mean, I was like, wow, that's like, you know, there's something to think about mm-hmm. there. 
Yeah. Well, Dave, I don't think we met before. It's been a pleasure. I do have to Absolutely. go now. And I hope yep. we can, uh, I hope our paths intersect again soon. I, I and, do too. Uh, and um, gentlemen, as always, thank you. Thank you, Jim, for joining us. Um, Nick, I think we could probably wrap up here in a minute. Yeah, it works. Jim. Uh, um, so I do want to divert us for a second here because, you know, I, I, I got to work on the cruise episode. Um, we had a lot of wind when we were up at the pool, which I didn't think of because I'm not a professional at this. So there is. And I, so I have to try and remove some of that. But while uh, while thinking of it, I kind of want to thank some of the you know people we met on the cruise. Um, huge shout out to all of our, our staff on Royal, um, especially Dave and Leandro, uh, Raymond, Naz, Omar, and Mo. And then the two best waiters ever, Rex and uh, Alberto. Yep. You said it right. I did say it right. Um, just, they were lovely, lovely people. It was great to meet Emily and Ian. Um, they got engaged on their birthday, which was awesome. Um, they also found out that the carrot cake was not very good that night. What? Carrot cake sucked ass. Um, Note itself, don't eat carrot cake on the uh, on the Royal Caribbean cruise line. We uh, want to do a see if this is a scam call. Yeah, hello, Nick. Come on, give it to me. Give it to me. Ah, uh, nobody's nothing, there. Nothing. Bullshit. Probably somebody that was going to ask if you were voting for Green Lizardman. Probably. I, I actually, let's see. Don't mind about who I'm voting for. Okay. Um, I'm for I, people. I also wanted to give a shout out to Chris from the uh, Mickey's Marvels podcast. He's going to do something with us. Um, yeah, that'd be fun. Caitlin beat him at Heroes and Villains trivia. I was very impressed with that. Um, so yeah, we had a, a really good time on the cruise. I I can't wait to go back in February with my wife. Um, I know that Mike and I are planning on a, a visit to Lansing here soon-ish. We'll get a hold of the professor and we will set that up. We're going to do a baseball episode. I don't know, yeah. maybe next week, maybe the week after. We'll find a time. Um, we'll talk about the wrap-up of the season since we didn't do one preseason. And uh, I, I'm just throwing this out there. When it gets nice out again, anybody wants to come over on the porch and watch TV, I got a projector. I'm going to project shit and sit on the porch and watch some, uh, I think, some baseball movies because I love okay. baseball movies. And maybe – a, a plan for opening day of next year if it's not you know 28 degrees and snowing yeah i would it, love it's that and it probably will be 28 degrees and snowing but maybe we can be nice to the weather gods between now and yes then and exactly there's no genre of sport that has as many good movies as no. baseball no and i you we talked like three or four this. good hot football movies three or four good basketball movies Maybe one good hockey movie and slapstick and oh I mean you got face off, you got mighty ducks and miracle. Okay. Miracle. Guess, yeah. So there oh, are yeah. a few, but baseball has baseball. the best sports movies. Yes. Oh yeah, of course. And Costner's in comedic, three of them. They can be comedic, it doesn't matter what they are, they're good. Yeah, baseball I technically. <laughs> um I want final thoughts. Professor, give us your final thoughts here. Final thoughts are as long as people want our uh, democratic system of elections and our republic to survive, it will. 
but if people don't want it to survive anymore, it won't. And the, that's both a um, blessing and a curse of the system because um, what I'm really getting at is elections work only when people respect the results and follow them. And when um, that no longer happens, then the whole system collapses. So let us hope that uh, cooler heads prevail no matter what the result of the election now and the ones that will hopefully come in the future is. Well, I really hope we have record turnout voter-wise in, in this midterm because people need to exercise that, right? I, I agree. We'll have, I don't think we'll have too much negative on this one. I mean, it's, it's not a presidential, right? Yeah, so, it's definitely not. Um, you know, I I tonight's episode was quick and, you know, it was more centralized. Um, it is tough to talk to a potential judge who mm -hmm. can't give his, right? I mean, he can't be an opinionated person, which is one thing I, you have to respect. But yeah. being a person, I mean, honestly, I think out of the four of us, I've been in front of a judge. Way <laughs> more than the rest of us. People, right? So it's like, um, you know, my mind has just a million questions that I want to ask and I want to go with. And, and um, you know, especially because like where, and, and like, I wish I could just dive back into it with him. Um, because right, he he did um, a lot of. Uh, oh gosh, I can't uh, can't think of the name of the thing. Public uh, defender. Yeah, well, besides that, uh, sorry, you get the free help or whatever. Legal aid. Yeah, legal, legal aid. Yeah, yeah. Legal so aid. you get a lot of legal, and so it's like right, like it's the people I go against. It's the things that I do this, and it's like right, like I I would just love to dive into that and have fun. Um, you know, Joe, I was really happy to hear him say that he hopes to win but even if he does win it's not going to change things like he understands like i'm just starting a present you know a presence to make it say hey i'm not going to be the the one to change this but like i'm going to have this opportunity um you know i i, I like that like he seems like he seems like a great guy that does got a good head on his shoulder he's a very you know very smart um yeah very well informed Right, and, and knows where he wants to be. Like, so, you know, again, it's not my district. That's out in Holland. Um, for some reason, I thought he was coming over into the Jamestown, Georgetown area or whatever. Um, but no, you know, and and I can, as much as I hate politics, and I think they're dumb and annoying to talk about, unlike what you guys love to do it, um, I think we had a good conversation, great education, right? Like, quick to the points type of things. And, you know, unlike all you guys, I'm the only one I got to drink with these guys, so... <laughs> When I when I see when I see uh when I see your honor up there, I'm gonna be like, hey, I, I had a beer with him. How's that bud treating you, right? Um, but he's yeah, let's say, and um, you know, it, it's but it is it's about building the relationships with these people and and getting to that next level is is exactly what they're talking, right? Well, and we plugged the show so much on the cruise, yeah, that I'm sure we're gonna pick up some listeners, especially from the staff. Um, and you know, one of the things we really talked about is we wanted, you know, just more awareness over what we're doing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. Cause you know, you're, you weren't there. I talked, I told your wife, cause it was like at the end of all of a sudden it hit me. I was like, they, they make a thousand bucks or whatever, yeah. you know, plus tips or whatever it is. So I don't know. But I said, let's figure 2000 bucks. I was like, man, between David and myself, we could probably afford 2000 bucks for the, for the month. I was like, and then we just have our self-personal waiters and, and, they and they live in the USA. So it's better for them. And I was like, sure, I'll be a stepping stone. But the, my one condition will be they have to train the next person before they leave. Right. Like, 
my my god did dave take care of us right so i you know i mean i you'll learn it's funny because you know i mean normally it's the person that has the money hanging out but uh they did a great job at pouring pouring alcohol they did um mike your final thoughts how much was interesting learning a little bit more about certain things and always love the professor's historic take on stuff I do really appreciate oh. that. Both both you and Jim gave a really nice dynamic to this because you have so much uh, to draw on for this conversation. Yeah, and I I really enjoyed um, having that opportunity with Jim. Uh, absolutely invite me on the next time he's on. He's definitely a, a gentleman I'd like to get to know a little more. Very yeah, you, you and him would hit it off very, very well. Um, oh. Nick, hit us. So everybody, like, subscribe, share, tell your friends, tell your family. We're going to try to get this episode up before the election um, as quick as possible. Uh, we appreciate you. Uh, shout out to Bud Light, I guess, and uh, with New Holland Dragons Milk. And uh, that was, I don't remember. I don't remember either. Uh, we'll have to look it up. But um, say thanks for joining us again. Like, subscribe, and share. That's the biggest way to get us out there. You can find us on any podcasting thing out there. Yep, pretty if, much. If not, tell us and we'll get ourselves there. Yeah, no kidding. And if you want some merch, we always got merch. So uh plus it's in my car. Oh, that's true. He didn't bring any on the boat. None. Um, thanks for joining us, everyone, and we will uh talk to you again very, very soon. Dialed in to Box and Brews, you might hear something you can use. Like tips on your cash or tips on the suds. You're going to want to use the smarts of these studs. Because they know the brews. And they know the box. And they know they can't help the stubborn fucks. So listen up, because shit's not funny. And save yourself some beer money. Bucks. And brews. Bucks and brews. Bucks. And brews. Bucks and brews.